0: I want to ask, when Paul says that in the last days he describes these perilous times and he describes uh, people who are lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God, and he concludes the whole thing by saying they will have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. Can we all agree that the primary subject of his discourse there has to be religious people? Because unreligious people do not have a form of godliness. And when Jude and Peter describe apostates as those who are clouds without rain mists driven by a storm are they not saying the same thing a cloud is a form however tenuous however nebulous it's a form it's some shape that comes into comes through onto our horizon and we assume this has rain but he describes the people who have turned their back on God and are religious but disobedient, and he says they are clouds without rain. One says they are springs without water. Can we agree that all these scriptures, clouds without rain, mist driven by a storm, springs without water, and forms without power, really all describe the same thing? And can we agree that it's basically the same thing as Jesus was spiritually portraying when he encountered the fig tree that was green in the leaf, but lacked any fruit. And can we agree that it's basically the same thing as Jesus was describing when he said, there will be false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits, not by their miracles, which they will perform. So it seems like If we take these seven scriptures that I've just named, they're all telling us, be careful of a religion that preserves the appearance, but that loses the substance and the power. Can we agree with that? Now, with that in mind, I want to submit that, and we've talked about this in some context, but I want to submit that all of that we've just described can also be understood as the same thing as what was going on with Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration. My dad has preached on this for many years under the label tabernacling God. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter is standing there and he sees the Son of God transfigured and Moses and Abraham and Elijah are with him and Jesus speaks to them about his exodus, right? Right? And it's just a moment of moments. And in his epistle, Peter's epistle, he tells us that the Lord forbade them to speak of these things until after he had ascended. This was, in short, a glimpse of glorification, a glimpse of who Christ was apart from his human kenosis that he was walking in on this earth. The emptying of himself, Philippians 2. Amen? Amen. And Peter says, Lord, it is good that we should be here. Let us build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And, uh, and the Bible follows it up with a little statement. What does it say after that? He said this because he was afraid and he did not know what to say. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Have we ever been in that position before? <laughs> But isn't it interesting that he thinks that's what is going to bless them? Another form, another tabernacle, another edifice of human creation. And in a less overt sense, do you see how this is even a little bit related to the other? That the last thing man is willing to lose is the appearances, is the tabernacle, is the leaves, the the spring, the cloud, the form of godliness that denies the power thereof. And in my experience, as, as we meet with other Christians in other places, and they aspire after the fruit that God has graciously allowed in this context, it's my experience that a battle commences between their ears or in their heart. And the battle is, are they going to look at what God has done here as a work of the flesh, or are they going to look at it as the grace of God? More specifically, are they going to pursue a formula or a relationship? And I would say that the biggest battle is that Christians especially those who excoriate works the loudest are completely accustomed to formula driven Christianity formula constructed Christianity and completely unaccustomed to a relational walk in the spirit. Now we all know that we believe in form. (laughs) We believe that without form, you cannot preserve the content. But while we believe in form and we believe in certain inflexible principles and patterns, we do not believe that formulas or formalities are the primary medium for our relationship with God. The primary medium for our relationship with God is through the Spirit, first and foremost, and then through receptivity to our brethren who are good stewards of the manifold grace of God that would be shared with us. And I understand, maybe we could explore, let's just ask the question, why do you think Christians gravitate toward formulas instead of relationship? Yes, sir it's less vulnerable and risky it's less vulnerable and risky what brother kevin is saying is it doesn't require faith you may doubt yourself but when you have a precise recipe for a a cake that everybody in the church makes you've got some measure of confidence that if you do this right especially if it's simple enough you're going to get a result and pretty much that's what theologians and pastors have done to Christianity is they've made it a cake that everybody can bake. I believe when, when um, Billy Graham first came on the scene and began to preach, I, I believe he had an anointing. I believe he certainly had a call from God and I don't doubt that God used him throughout his ministry. But I see a a shift coming. But part of his stupendous effectiveness was that he reduced salvation down to a cake that everybody could bake. He made it oh so simple. (laughs) So simple that it could be done and dusted in one crusade meeting. And I don't either doubt that that a a, a legitimate relationship with God may begin with a sinner's prayer. I don't doubt that. But a relationship is far more involved and requires far more faith and risk than simply this pat little one, two, three-step program that gets you done and dusted. You see, if, if, if we could just reduce relationship with God down to that, then the masses would have it. Well, they have reduced it down to that, and the masses have it. But it's not relationship with God. It's a counterfeit. It's a form without power. It's a spring without water, a cloud without rain. It's a tabernacle without glory. It's an edifice made by man's hands, a place where God does not dwell. What we want is a relationship with the Lord Jesus through his word, through his spirit, and through his word and spirit coming through his body. That's what we want. The Father is looking for people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. I remember when we had established a congregation in another country, but we were not able to spend extensive personal time with them. We felt the Lord prompting us to send them the confession for baptism and communion. But I'll tell you, we we did that with much prayer and trepidation. And we discussed it and considered it greatly. Because we saw that there might be a proclivity for them to turn even that book into a formula that substituted relationship. We knew that God had given us the reality of his presence, the reality of his word, and the reality of both in our communion directly with him through prayer and our communion with his body in the spirit. We knew that God had made himself real in our midst. And that we had an anointing who would teach us and lead us and guide us into all things. And we knew that that book had grown out as an expression of this vital, meaning lively, dynamic relationship with God. But we also saw the risk that people would start to make that a substitute a bare minimum requirement, where if I've got that, I'm good to go. That's supposed to be diagnostically helpful. That's supposed to reveal things. That's supposed to ask hard questions that take you back to the relationship. But whenever anything becomes a minimum requirement, you're at risk of replacing the relationship with that. And I'm thankful that I don't believe that happened in these cases. But there's something that wants to get a hold of us. You see, it's just a whole lot more risky to have to walk by faith, to have to feel after God. We want everything locked and pinned down and articulated already. And admittedly, the flesh can be defined and pinned down and locked to the cross already. But to some extent there are things that we're going to have to seek God for that are just not so cut and dried. People marvel that Jesus raised the standard of righteousness when He came. He raised it right out of human reach. It was already out of their reach, but He took it several feet higher. And He didn't do that to mock human weakness. He did that so that the demands would necessitate a relationship. When he said, unless your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, he had already said about the Pharisees, they put a burden on people that is too heavy for them to bear, and they don't help even with a pinky. But the Lord came and he raised the burden. He raised the standard. But he didn't offer a pinky. He gave us the helper. You have an advocate with the Father. He gave us the paracletos of the Holy Spirit. He gave us the body. He gave us Himself. So that He would say in John 15, apart from me you can do nothing. But Paul would boldly declare in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who empowers me, who gives me strength. So God's demands to righteousness are a veiled invitation to relationship. He's not trying to mock our weakness. He's trying to get us to realize our need for him. I've given the example before, if, if your four or five-year-old becomes a little big for his britches, one way that you show him that he's getting too big for his britches is you ask the boy to do a daddy task you kind of haphazardly say, Son, could you pick up that barrel and bring it over here? Oh, sure. He goes over, and he finds his limitations. And What does he do when he finds those limitations? If he believes that the thing must move, he looks back to the relationship. He looks back to Daddy. He looks back to Mommy, and he petitions with his eyes, if with nothing else, to say, Apart from you, I can do nothing, but I can do all things if you help me. So when the Lord raises the standard of righteousness, and when he makes these clear demands, he's not unaware of our inability to fulfill them. But he has given everything we need for life and godliness. And Paul says, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in store. So every time you come up against something that seems like an impossibility, it was tailor-made by God to deepen your relationship. It was tailor-made by God to get you to look back to your Father and say, Lord, can you help me? Amen. Not in self-pity, not in dejection or disengagement, but with a commitment, an unflagging commitment. I'm going to do your will, O God, but you've got to work in me to will and do your good pleasure. And these kind of works, these kind of relationship-derived works can only be called human works by dishonest frauds. Paul says, By the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain, for I worked harder than you all, but it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. And Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that when they see your good works, they don't glorify you, they glorify your Father. When they see you've moved the barrel, they say, Dad must have been helping you. But we like formulas, and formulas are dangerous. And I want to be careful, and I want to be respectful, because I know that even those of us who know that they're dangerous subconsciously fall into them ourselves. I know that my dad at times did mischievous things and i'm not suggesting that but he he uh from time to time I, i've been told i don't remember it but brother howard can confirm this that in austin when the meetings became too predictable he invited the elders to sit at the back of the room is that correct yes and uh, so that we would not create a formula out of church so that we would actually come with an expectation to do God's will and to minister one to another. Each of you bring a song, a psalm, a spiritual word of edification, and so on and so forth. I used to try to do it, and I still do sometimes. Sometimes we get too formulaic, and we'll make it into a circle, or we used to go outside or mix it up, because we want, if it's totally predictable, we're not convinced that we're really obeying God. We're not convinced that he's leading because he's not totally predictable. And I'm not suggesting that anything is wrong with our setup this morning. That's not my point. But, you know, I even look at at some some things we've gone through recently. And I'm going to try to tiptoe into them while being respectful to everybody. But, you know, the Lord spoke to us in 2019. We were under a real attack. And some former brothers had turned bitter and malicious and were doing their best to hurt us. And like vultures, they sat on the fence watching for a tragedy to exploit. So when Brother Zane and Sister Hannah uh, lost their child after nine days in the hospital on that ECMO machine, our vultures were writing letters to the hospital saying they did something wrong. You need to investigate the community. Our vultures were running off and riding Hillcrest and riding Temple and trying to stir up trouble. And when you live with Sambalat and Tobias lurking on the fences, you want to know that your confidence is in the Lord and not yourself. We had nothing to hide. We had done everything right. We mourned and wept and went through horrors, but because they don't like us, they persecute us in that way. And it's not just that, it's, it's everything. Every time someone has a crisis, a physical crisis, we're caught up in the, in the, the moment and hurting with them and, and somebody's on the outside saying, well, that only happened because they're part of you. He's only sick because he's part of that church. Just endless stuff. And you know and we all know that God has given us home birth as a as a real blessing in this community not everybody feels to have a a baby at, at home for various extenuating circumstances the lord may lead them to have it in the hospital but we generally believe that it's a real blessing and our success rates are phenomenal and we thank god for that now i'll tell you with our first baby before that baby ever came the lord told us we were supposed to go to the hospital and we did And tragically, we lost him. But that was okay. It was God's will. It cut us. It hurt us. It broke us. And we went through a lot of turmoil. But it happened in the hospital, and it was God's will. God covered us in that way. But as as we became aware that there were those who were trying to hurt us by exploiting tragedy, we said, Lord, we had conversations. Brother Dan and Sister Amanda and I, Brother Howard and I, all of the elders together, and we, we really humbled ourselves and we said, Lord, we don't want to have faith in faith. We want to have faith in you. And faith in God necessitates a word from God because that's the only way faith comes, by hearing the word of God. And we sensed that the enemy might try to challenge our flesh in an inappropriate way. And so we determined ahead of time, we're not going to take that challenge. We're not going to try to prove anything in the flesh. We're not going to try to show how righteous we are or sanctimonious we are. That's not why we're doing it in the first place. We're doing it because God is good and he's given us a blessing. We're trying to live it out. But what we promised is that we're going to be obedient. The greatest sacrifice, the greatest faith that you will ever exercise in your Christian walk is total obedience. And the more mature you come into God's blessings, God's ways, the more scary that obedience is going to be. Because he's going to ask you to do things that test your devotion to him over your devotion to what you think is religious or right or proper. We all agree it's a blessing to have babies at home, right? But if God tells you to have that baby in the hospital, you need to have that baby in the hospital. You need to be obedient. And I'm not just saying transport. We're going to do that regardless if there's a crisis. But I'm saying you need to be obedient because he may have a purpose that does not occur to your carnal mind. And those moments that seem to go against our principles are some of the most critical pivot points in our relationship with God that we can ever experience. And we all come to this with a lot of fear and trembling. Because on the one side, we don't want to disrespect what God has given us, do we? We don't want to, we don't want to lose faith but we don't want to have faith in faith we don't want to have faith that is in a notion in a assumption in a conclusion or in a form or formality or formula we want to have faith in God some of these things are already settled there are things that are just unequivocal in scripture but then there is this Whole spectrum of our life that requires meticulous, ginger, careful obedience to God. And if, if the devil can convince us to create a formula where God wants us to walk by risky faith, he's going to trap us.
1: Yes, sir. I remember church, it was, uh, they had something going. His name was Hobart Freeman, Indiana. They started in a barn and wound up having four to 5,000 people uh, congregation. And and God was speaking to them. He was doing things in their midst. It was incredible. And they got trapped in exactly the way that you're speaking of. They, They began to believe, you know, they had all these miraculous healings and someone was raised from the dead. And then they started having faith in faith and they started doing things that that were just formulaic and this is going to happen. And they had something like 11 young children die unnecessarily because they wouldn't go to the, something like that. And it utterly destroyed that entire witness. And what God was preparing for an incredible witness made his name a byword. Amen.
0: Brother Zach, could you share what you share with
2: me about that couple, that family that ended up in prison? I don't know the entire details, so it'll be something that people will need to look up and verify, but we were dealing with a family that was getting influenced by a a faith movement, and it was a movement that you had to hold fast to the Word, and if you didn't hold fast in faith to uh, what needed to occur, then you know, it was going to be your fault for whatever tragedy occurred. So apparently their child had a diabetic shock, and they thought they needed to just continue in faith and to take the child to the doctor um, or the hospital would be the abandonment of faith. The child ended up dying, and the parents went in for some kind of neglect, manslaughter, charge of something like 10 years or something along these lines. And I remember reading it and just talking to a family that was influenced by this teaching and speaking the same words that we're talking today.
0: You see, what's happened in that scenario, we're telling these horror stories because they're real. This happens. But what has happened in that scenario is a false doctrine has crept in. Nobody in this room doubts that we believe in healing. We gave witness to healing today and we prayed for healing today. Amen? We believe in healing. I've been miraculously healed twice in my life. I believe in healing. Okay? And nobody doubts that we're going to pray the prayer of faith over everyone who is sick. And we're going to believe for the healings we ask for today. But you know what we believe in more than healing? God. We believe in the word of God. And we're going to be obedient if he tells us to be healed, take up our mat and go home. And we're going to be obedient if he tells us to go to the hospital. But what we're not going to do is say, I don't have to interact with him on that level. I don't have to find out his precise will for this crisis because i got a doctrine that says I'm going to be healed. That's what we're not going to do. What is a formula that replaces your relationship with God, your dependence on God? What is it? It's an idol. It's something shaped and carved like God that is devoid of his spirit whether it's a doctrine or a formula or a belief system it doesn't matter it's an idol it's an idol we need to be dependent on the voice of the Holy Spirit and if God tells us to go here we're going to go and if he tells us to go there we're going to go we see that the Lord had to overcome something in the Apostle Peter, even to give birth to us, the Gentiles. Did he not? Why? Because he had a notion that despite the cross and despite the teaching of Christ and despite the outpouring of the Spirit, he could not think outside certain frameworks. Now, I don't judge him because I'm sure I do it worse. And I don't judge him because all the other 11 apostles had a harder time than Peter did. But they didn't see the way God does things like Peter saw when that sheet came down from heaven. Remember when he was asleep? By the way, this has nothing to do with eating food. But when he was asleep on on Simon the Tanner's house, he saw this sheet come down from heaven. And upon the sheet were all manner of four-footed creatures and symbolizing crocodiles like Gentiles and all kinds of other tiles and and he was repulsed because the Lord said get up kill and eat he said I've never eaten anything unclean there's a principle and the Lord was trying to say can you be more obedient than you are principled I've never eaten anything unclean he's probably around 15 years after the ascension of Christ but it It's out of the question for him. And the Lord says, do not call unclean what God has made holy. And a door of salvation opens to people because a man doesn't get stuck in his principles. Brother Zane and Sister Hannah were telling us that he had a a job in another town nearby, and he, he was working with another brother, I think Jed uh, Stewart, and uh, Zane's one of the guys helping run the job and whatnot. And the couple was saying that their daughter was a nurse in a hospital in, in a Temple and how her life had pivoted, some pivotal moment in her life, they told one of our brothers was when this Anabaptist couple came down and put their baby on that ECMO machine for nine days. And they were praying every night that God would heal him, and he didn't. And it was their baby. Thank you, Jesus. Sister Darla went up to a little town, windy city called Chicago, <laughs> when she had chemotherapy. And boy, did we pray for her. Did we lay hands on her and believe With all our hearts that God could heal. her, And he could. But he had a wholeness that stretched into eternity. He had this beautiful couple in mind to bring and make part of this body of Christ. And all of those whom they have helped and brought to the Lord as well. And so he said, I want you to go suffer for my namesake. I want you to go do chemotherapy. But then it turned out it was a dead end. No, it wasn't a dead end. The chemotherapy didn't work, but the purpose of God sure did. Whatever you give for the glory of God and obedience, it's never wasted. It's never wasted. It cannot be wasted. My dad has said that it falls like a drop into an underground reservoir only to spring up as salvation and hope for someone else in a parched desert in days and years to come. We need to be obedient. And not obedient to our formulas and conclusions about God, but obedient to God, obedient to His Spirit, obedient to His leading. Now, I want to ask you, do you think the Lord gave the dietary patterns to the Old Testament? Do you think He gave it for their good? We still believe that. We still basically abide by those patterns, don't we? Not for righteousness' sake, but we do, don't we? Because He gave it for our good. And so do you think it's possible that a pattern given for our good could become a barrier to our obedience? Do you think it's possible that that pattern given for good might have been a barrier in Peter's heart when he said, I have never, far be it from me, Lord, I won't do this. (laughs) There was a barrier there because of a pattern that was given for his good. But there was something more than a health pattern at risk. It was the salvation of the Gentile church. And it was Peter's obedient dependence on the Holy Spirit. Amen? Thank you, Jesus. Picture Jacob, the one who perseveres with God. I mean, the beginning of the faithful congregation, the beginning of of the people of God starts with God making promises And then making the people let go of the promises, it seems, doesn't it? Abraham, Abraham, your body's as good as dead and Sarah's, her womb is as good as dead, but I'm going to make a mighty nation out of you in your 90s and 100s. Amen. Okay, God, I believe. Is it going to be this way or that way or that way or this way? No, 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 no. Trust me, trust me. Trust me, Abraham. Okay, I believe. About this time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Sure enough, here's Isaac. Oh, this is just great. And you can just feel the hands of the flesh tightly gripping the promise of God. But flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he had to let go of it with the hands of the flesh to receive it with the hands of faith and the eyes of faith and the steps of faith. Amen? Receiving God's promise in fleshly, carnal, grasping hands is like catching water in a wire basket. You can't do it. It goes right through it. So he says, I want you to take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and I want you to sacrifice him to me on the mountain. God knows that his promise is being taken possession of by fleshly determination. Determination by human willpower. And he knows that's going to kill the promise. So he needs to make Abraham's flesh let go. Let it go. That's why he starts it with, if it pleases you. And then he receives Isaac back in a figurative sense as from the dead. And next thing is is Isaac himself. He has two sons and Isaac doesn't take the prompting of the Lord to make Jacob the heir he's going to do it the carnal way and God has to wait until he is so weak in his old age that he is blind and decrepit and unable to interfere and then in all the wrong way God makes him hoodwinks him and makes him an unwitting accomplice in his eternal purpose And my dad writes about how after he blesses Jacob and he realizes what he's done, a very great trembling comes upon him. There's this shudder. This isn't someone who lived his life wanting to please the Lord and trusting God more than his conclusions. This is someone sure of himself who God had to reduce through old age and blindness, weakness, until when he finally is an accessory to God's purpose. Oh, that's awful. It's like this horrible scene. A great trembling comes upon Isaac. Amen. Is that how you want to bless God? Is that how you want to be used by God? I don't... That's not how I want to be used by God. I want to hear him when he says, take your son, your only son, and do something in faith. See, I don't think Isaac acted in faith. I think God had to hoodwink him to have his way. I don't want God to have to hoodwink me to have his way. I want him to ask me if I trust him and let me prove that I do. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. Amen. And then Jacob goes through the same thing. you know, He he, he, he receives these blessings from God. First, is, first it's his wife and his wife dies and then it's his, his son Joseph and, and he thinks he's been killed and then it's Benjamin and, and God has to squeeze him. They did not have the faith of Abraham. They apprehended faith, especially Jacob, named Israel. but it was not like Abraham. God just tapped Abraham on the shoulder and said, take the thing you love most and on your own free will, without a famine, without old age and blindness, just go take him up to the mountain and do what I tell you. And he trusted God's character more than his own love. He trusted God's provision. The New Testament tells us that he was confident that God could raise him from the dead if necessary but not Isaac and Jacob. Jacob's mad. He doesn't like it. Famine. He's lost Rachel. He's lost Joseph. Now there's famine. And the Lord is saying, let go. Let go. Let go. Amen. If you don't let go, if you just live by your principles, this is going to become another Edifice of man's making. Let go. And he he stands in the doorway of his tent. I've ministered this many times, but he stands in the doorway of his tent and he pitches a fit. All these things are against me. What a blessing. What a mercy that God cornered the flesh through famine and old age and imprisonment and Pharaoh until he had to take a step of faith, of trust. All these things are against me. But in the end, he says, take the boy. He chooses to let go. And we know that he receives both back from the dead in a figurative sense. What's powerful is that after he trusts, and God proves his faithfulness. There's not even a debate about going to Goshen. There would have been. There would have been. There would have been big struggles about it. But he wasn't worshiping the God idea. He wasn't worshiping his principles. He was worshiping God. And I, I really see a man of faith after that. I don't see anything but faith in Jacob. Jacob. He steps out. And when he gets to Pharaoh, he says, my days have not equaled the days of my father's. My life has been few. My days have been few and full of trouble. But he even has a blessing for Pharaoh and a blessing for his 11 sons and the two sons of Joseph. Amen. He doesn't die in self-pity. He doesn't die a cornered, resentful animal. He dies someone with a, a view toward the future hallelujah he didn't live by the canaan principle or else he would have died in the canaan principle he lived by obedience he found the grace to walk in obedience so he made it to goshen that wasn't god's final perfect purpose but it was his purpose for that hour joseph died leaning on his staff and saying don't leave my bones in egypt they all had a view this isn't permanent Amen. But they weren't apologetic. They weren't regretting that they had obeyed God. If the Lord told you today to leave behind your farm, told you to leave behind your beautiful life, told you to go into a place completely devoid of it, would you be more dependent on His Spirit or would you be more dependent on His blessings? Would you grip and grasp at the blessing? and say, no, God gave it. I dare not give it up. Or would you stand at the door of your tent and express your bitterness? Or would you step out and say, God, I don't understand it. I don't know what I'm doing or why I'm doing it, but I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I have committed until that day. Oh, God, I don't want Your blessings to become idols. I don't want the things You've erected like the bronze serpent as our salvation and protection. I don't want it to become an idol that supplants our direct dependence on You. Thank You, Jesus. I felt a cleansing back in 2019. The Lord supernaturally warned us and said, You need to take this step. And we took it. And if we hadn't taken it, tragedy would have resulted. The Lord supernaturally warned us You need to do this like that. We felt like, okay, we're in the will of God. The Lord could have stood there with Mary and Joseph, amen, and said, Herod and his army's coming, but I'll send my angel. We don't know why God does things that he does. We have this couple, Mary and Joseph, with an angelic visitation, brothers and sisters. We don't know if that's Michael or Gabriel, but one of the heavenly commanders is present with them. We already know from the story of Sodom and Gomorrah that this angel could have struck blind Herod and all of his men. But that wasn't God's eternal purpose for whatever reason. So He doesn't send an angel to be a a house guard. He tells him to get up and go to Egypt. We can construct all kinds of rationalizations that allow us to persist in the little comfy place of our conclusions and our formulas and our principles, oh, we can say, speak the word, for your servant is listening. Just bid me where, God, and I'll go. Just call me. I'm on the edge of my seat, God. So he says, arise and go to Egypt. We don't know what happened while they were in Egypt. Not much, it doesn't seem. They're back in a short while. But they obeyed God. That's what happened. They taught that two year old that when the Lord says to move, we move. Amen. Oh, I want to be obedient to the Spirit. Amen. Amen. I love that passage in Acts 8 where he says, And the word of the Lord came to Philip, saying, Arise and go out on the road toward Gaza. It's so amazing that he doesn't say, Go to Gaza, he says, On the road toward Gaza. Why am I going? I don't know. Who am I going to meet? I don't know. But I'm going to obey. That's what I'm going to do. Just like Peter coming down from the steps of Simon the Tanner's upstairs house, rooftop there, and saying, I'll go with these people. Amen. I've just had a vision. The Lord has just revealed something to me. Amen. Lord, give us a vision. Give us a vision that undoes our principled, formulaic, persistence that's really just stubbornness amen lord give us a vision that prevents us from being springs without water christians with a form that has no power because the power is in the step of obedience amen amen i know i've ministered something similar but i i still feel this very clearly and strong amen oh there there are truths that god has spoken to us that are immovable right but our daily obedience and All this other business, it's not that simple. We're never going to deny the oneness of God. We're never going to deny the revelations He's given us, the Holy Spirit, what the church is called to be. We're never going to deny the order of the Lord. Any of these things that are fixed and settled forever in heaven, we're never going to deny. But whether I stay in Bethlehem or get up and travel tonight to Egypt, that's not a fixed thing. I've got to know from God what is your will. And I've got to go in His timing. Amen. Amen. It's not about being random in order to prove that you're footloose and fancy free. That's not what it's about at all. You need to dwell in tents with Isaac and Jacob as in a strange land until he tells you to come to the door of your tent and take a step toward Goshen. Amen. Praise you, Jesus. It's not about being random. There are people who have a principle of randomness. Right? They can't be tied down. They can't be faithful in anything. So they're just always... Off here and off there, and I'm going on a mission trip, and no, you're not. That's just a principle of missions. That's just a principle of moving and running and gunning and doing for God. Oh, it's exhausting. That's just as bad a principle, maybe worse. So you can be principled in your stubborn complacency, and you can be principled in your overactive head running ahead of God, but we don't want to be principled, we just want to follow. Leave me, Lord. I'll follow anywhere you open up the door. Amen.
1: Thank you, Jesus. You know, I've always considered the foundation of this church to have begun. This is maybe not 100% accurate, but I, this is the way I feel and that it actually began in Baton Rouge, Louisiana in 1973, early 1973, when uh, Brother Blair was uh the the superintendent of the organization that they were still a part of had asked them to go to baton rouge uh to evangelize they were on the evangelistic field going from church to church and he he was asked to go there the superintendent at that time actually had it in his heart he wanted brother blair to take that church at the time that church was probably one of the most, if not the most prosperous churches in the organization. It had been there for many years, but they'd had recently some trouble keeping pastors. I think there was problems in the church. And Brother Blair went there, not knowing what was in the heart of Brother Weeks, the the superintendent, and he went there and as is typical of Brother Blair, he started yielding to the spirit, started ministering the word of God, and this incredible transformation took place in that church people start backsliders started coming back praying through people from the streets started receiving the spirit i forget how many weeks he was there it was long time i think it stretched into months and and the church was just utterly transformed and he was he was in the the he would pray in the pastor's office it wasn't his office but that's where he had a place to pray and he he was there praying this sunday morning and god gave him a vision and he's told me that he didn't have a lot of visions in his life but he had some and this was a vision i mean the world was blacked out and before him he was in a in a big pasture and and there were sheep everywhere bye uh, 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 uh. Three times this happened. He would look, and, God, you know, he's getting ready for a Sunday meeting and here's this, this, this uh, vision given to him by God, you know, and, and he said, God, what is this? And the Lord spoke to him very distinctly. These are sheep without a shepherd. And this happened Then he, he kind of came to, and then it happened again. it happened three times. After all of that, there was a knock, knock, knock on the the door, the office door, and and he gets up and he walks and he opens the door, and there are all these the the elders of the church. They call elders something different than we do. They're sort of the we would consider them deacons or or a, 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 an advisory board or something of this church, and they said to, yes, and they said, brother Adams. You know, we've been without a shepherd for for a long time. And and what we have seen happen here with you, uh, we want to come as representative of this church and ask you, would you please be our shepherd? Amen. And Brother Blair just couldn't believe it. He just had these three visions and hear these people knocking at the door, you know, and and share this with him. And he said, he said, I will pray, but I have to call my pastor. And and uh, because there was a relationship there that he knew was a covering to him. Amen. And he went and he he made a phone call. And he told his pastor at that time what had just happened. He just had this vision three times. These people say that. And all his pastor told him was, You get Sister Regina, pack up everything, and you get out of there immediately. Mm. Boy. (laughs) He just, yes, amen. Because he knew who he was hearing from. Amen. And, and, uh, And he did. He got up. He he got everything together. Went and got sister. And they they started leaving across the parking lot to get in their car, and the men came out and you know in tears. What is happening? Why are you you know? Have we done something? No, you have not done anything wrong. But I must obey the voice that I have heard. And let's see. Within, I am certain. Within. Five weeks. I'll stretch it a little bit. Because from there he wound up going out west to Phoenix, Arizona. And there a prophecy came on him that said, you know, that that just as Joseph was separated from his brothers, so you will be separated from your brothers. But I and this is from a guy he didn't know at all, you know, but 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 just as I was with Joseph in Egypt, so I will be with you and you will fulfill. You will fill the storehouses for a day of famine. And, and it, was, it was stunning to him. And then he went, and, and within a week, he was having a heart attack in California and, and had to be driven back to Texas. And within another two weeks, he was in New York City. And it began. And I'll tell you, this isn't a work done by men's hands. This is a work, amen, that says, God, I'm going to obey you no matter what. If you're calling me from the most cush, prosperous church to go with with heart failure in the wilderness of the slums of New York City, God, I'm going to do it. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. That's what's built this church. That's what we're all about, amen. That's everything, amen. We're no different than anybody else unless we follow the Spirit of God, amen. That's what we have to offer the world, the church world, that's what we have to offer, amen. We're going to obey God no matter what, amen, amen. This message today, let me tell you, it's foundational, it's fundamental, amen. Amen. We have heard the word of God today. Amen. If you didn't understand it, God help me to understand. Amen. Maybe I've got too many fig leaves still on me. You know, that's that's the, the after fear, the very first manifestation of the sinful nature was to put some fig leaves on. Amen. God, amen. I want to be vulnerable. I want to be open. Amen. I want to do the will of God. Amen. Amen. Jesus
3: as the word of the lord was coming today to us i thought of these words from peter the same peter we've been hearing about today who who was wanting to build the tabernacle you know and then the voice of god came the same peter who who saw the sheet coming down and said i've got a fault but then he then he heard the voice of god the same peter who who got carried away again, even after all of that, into his principles and was snared by the fear of man, by religious people. But he heard the voice of God through his brother Paul saying, you're getting stuck, you're getting off again. This is him later in his life and he's recounting about the the transfiguration and he says, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables. We didn't follow conspiracy theories. We didn't follow cleverly Uh, put together doctrines. We didn't follow recipes for baking the cake. Something else is what we were following. We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And when you read in the Gospels, the Lord added, listen to him. Amen. And in Hebrew, the the word hear or listen and obey, is the same thing. You cannot differentiate actually hearing from doing what you hear. This is my son. Listen to him. Forget building the tabernacle. Forget the good ideas. Just listen and follow and we heard this voice, which came from heaven, when we were with him on the holy mountain. This is the Peter who had said, you know, when Jesus said, are you going to, you want to leave? The words I'm speaking today don't make all the sense in the world to your mind. Do you want to leave? Where else are we going to go, Lord? You have the words. See, this man had a conviction to stick with the relationships. He had a pastor in his life that, was, that he knew God had sent to him for those moments when he didn't understand everything else. He understood relationally what he was supposed to do and where he was going to hear that voice. And that conviction brought him through the times he did not understand. So it says, we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man. Amen. He's saying, we can't take even words, the word of God in, in this written form. The devil would use this. He came at Jesus with principles out of, out of this word. He's saying, we can't take that and then say, okay, we got it. We got the Bible. We don't, we don't need you. Remember Jesus with the Pharisees? You search the scriptures because in them you think you will, you will have life. But they, these testify of me, but you won't come to me that you might have life. It's a relationship again. Amen. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. I feel the same Holy Spirit speaking to us today, don't you? Thank you, Jesus. I want to move wherever he sends us. Amen.